0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. In recent years, Fortune 500 companies, including Goldman Sachs, Exxon, and Walmart, have donated hundreds of millions of dollars to elevate women and girls around the world living in poverty. While the programs have produced some tangible benefits, Not surprisingly, the motives of these corporate giants are not 100% altruistic. In her new book, The Gender Effect, Capitalism, Feminism, and the Corporate Politics of Development, my guest, Professor Catherine Muller, examines some of the downsides of these charitable endeavors and vividly tells a complex story about the interplay between globalization, philanthropy, feminism, international development, and consumerism. Catherine is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a National Academy of Education Spencer Foundation postdoctoral fellow. I give you Catherine Muller. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Scott.
0: It's great to have you. You've written a, a really interesting book, which is about, it's called The Gender Effect, Capitalism, Feminism, and the Corporate Politics of Development. So the short one of the short takeaways I had from reading this book was that The second I see a corporate feel good film about how the corporation is improving the lives of girls in the global south, I should just start asking every critical question I can.
1: (laughs) Um, I think that is a good takeaway.
0: This is like when BP tells you how much they're doing for environmental protection. I'm like, wait, weren't you the people that did the thing and that all the, you know, ruined everybody's lives? And then, so, so. Basically, you you're chronicling the history of a movement where you know NGOs and corporations have kind of banded together to do imp- to developmental improvement for women in the global side, young women, adolescent girls, and everybody this is the thing like okay, that sounds great, right? Corporations trying to be responsible and you know by people's lives getting better, but there's a dark side, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I talk about it in the book as kind of the reactionary and the expansionary tendencies of corporate capitalism. So on one hand, we have corporations like ExxonMobil and Chevron, um, Nike, Apple, uh, Walmart, Gap that have all experienced pretty intense uh, criticism for their business practices in a variety of ways. Areas, And so these companies are oftentimes attempting to recover from these public relations problems as they begin investment in girls and women. And that's what my research has revealed over the past decade is that really, as corporations are in the midst of these processes, of, you know, these public relations problems, or as they have already recovered from them in some ways, they've kind of quieted down, but now they're trying to do kind of more long-term work, they begin to invest in girls and women. But then there's also another tendency, that's what I call these expansionary tendencies, which is beyond the kind of reaction. Um, And this is attempting to build really kind of long-term growth in geographies that they may or may not already be present in. So creating kind of a new population or geographic frontier for corporate profit.
0: Yeah. So it's sort of like Nike saying, hey, I know in the past you thought of us as people who sold you sneakers that were sewn together by you know, kids in a sweatshop. But now we're helping the kids with a sweatshop. And the sweatshop, right?
1: Yeah. So Nike is actually kind of an interesting case, and not all of the companies that I looked at follow this model. But you know, Nike became the kind of global pariah of the of the anti sweatshop movement in the, in the early and late 1990s. And as an attempt to recover from that, Nike was very direct about um, their problems. Phil Knight, who was then the CEO, announced at the National Press Club in 1998 um, that Nike product had become synonymous with slave wages. You know, forced overtime and various abuses. And in an attempt to recover from that, the Nike Foundation over time um, began to invest in exactly the same population that it was essentially accused of exploiting in its contract factories, which are young, uneducated, poor um, girls and women. um, They would call them women in this sense um, that live in countries in the global south where their contract factories are located. And that's essentially the exact same population um, that they invest in through the foundation, except they're branded through the foundation as adolescent girls, um, as opposed to, they talk about women in their contract factories and adolescent girls in their philanthropic work. Um, But many of these girls or women, however you want to label them, are actually the same age, the very same demographic. Um, They're just, you call them by a different name.
0: Now, why does that matter? Like, okay, what is there, like, you know, that seems... To the to the casual uh, observer, okay, women here, adolescent girls, like, why why is that like a little bit of corporate sleight of hand, so to speak?
1: Yeah, well, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about girls or boys or children involved in labor, right? Because there is a whole anti child labor movement, and so the idea of, you know, a 16-year-old can be called a girl um, in philanthropic or development work. And that same 16-year-old or 17-year-old or 18-year-old, depending on laws, could be working um, in these contract factories. But you wouldn't want to call them girls in the factories. But the ways in which you can use girl um, or adolescent, for example, within development or philanthropy, really, um, you know, so there are a number of reasons. One, if you intervene earlier, right, it's seen as you can kind of change that trajectory. So a woman is kind of seen as already formed, right? Whereas an adolescent or a girl is in formation, right? So the idea within development is if you can kind of catch them upstream, this is one of the language, the, the kind of language that's used, the girls or adolescents are upstream, And so, if you can, it sounds like we're talking about about salmon. Salmon. Well, I mean, it's really that's the language. Um, uh, The World Bank uses it. I mean, it's very, it's kind of popular language, particularly in the health field. Um, And so, if you catch them upstream, you're more likely to have more of an impact. That's part of the reason why people are trying to invest earlier um, than with women. Um, And then also, I think there is the idea that, that children are innocent and that shouldn't be working or shouldn't be have all this labor. Right. And so you want to kind of try to save them from that. Right. So there are kind of multiple discourses going on here.
0: And also get them early is also it sounds a little bit like cigarette companies, too. Like we want to get them hooked early. Right. So if we can make them consumers early. Then we've got this huge, you talk about, is it the bottom, uh, the yeah. bottom billion, right? There's a couple of things it, you, you mentioned actually that this discourse, you say it's, it's predicated on four interrelated uh, discourses, the corporate investment in girls and women, bottom billion capitalism, philanthrocapitalism, capitalism, gender equality, and third world difference, right? So the first one is like, hey, we, hey look, this isn't just um, doing good and making you feel good. It'll line your pockets, too, right? So there's right. this sort of self-interest in making these girls yeah, financially, you know, flour- to help them flourish financially and socioeconomically. Be- but uh, their means, not ends, right? We're looking at them exactly. as, as yeah. consumers.
1: Right. And I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, it's complicated. They're consumers, they're reproductive actors, right? That's really an important part of the equation. They're productive, right, in terms of their uh, productive labor entrepreneurship. Um, So they, you know, they're investing in them for multiple reasons, right? It's not just in terms of consumption. But one of the interesting things you know, that I observed during my fieldwork at the NGOs in Rio is that many of these young women were already Nike consumers. Um, So I would look around the room every morning and so many of the young women were wearing Converse. Well, a lot of people don't know it, but Converse is a brand of nike and actually quite an affordable brand in Brazil. And so lots of young people um, buy Converse shoes. Even young people who don't necessarily have the means, right, to be consuming other sorts of Nike products can afford Converse shoes, right? So these young women in this program funded were already Nike consumers, right? Um, and so that's, I think, one of the things that's interesting um, is that we see in countries like Brazil, India, and China, some of the young women who are, you know, targeted are probably already consumers. Not to mention, um, they could also be contract for factory workers. Now, one of the things I think that's interesting about Nike's, the Nike Foundation's geography of philanthropic investment is that um, they never invested in cities where they have contract factories. So, for example, in Rio de Janeiro, they don't have any contract factory workers. Um, there are contract factories in Sao Paulo, there are contract factories in uh, the southern part of the country, and as well as in the northeastern part of the country. But in Rio, for example, there are no contract factories. Um, and what we see is that in country, you know, in Brazil, China, India, where they already have these factories, they 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 actually didn't map on directly into those communities um, during the time that I was there. No,
0: what's the significance of that? Is that or do they not invest in the place where they have factories because you avoid the problem of the of the sort of while well, we're calling them women here yeah. and girls there? It's just easier if you hey, you know, while we're sort of. Uh, getting cheap labor over here where, where where maybe people see the underside of some of what we do will, yeah. will be good. We'll, we'll wear the, you know, the sort of bad guy hat over here and we're we'll the good guy hat over here. Is that sort of the, to keep the, keep the, keep everybody sort of separate.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in, in terms of Nike, that's more, uh, what this approach is. Whereas with GAP, for example, GAP actually has had many of the same complaints around sweatshop labor problems. And they actually created this program, PACE, um, which is in their factories. So they're working with young women in this case. They're oftentimes the same age, like 16 to 24, for example, or the Nike Foundation program that, I've, that I studied. And many of those workers in the GAP factory who are involved in the PACE program, I think, fall within the, that age range, and they call them women. Um, but they actually do do training um, in their factories. Um, But one thing that's interesting about Gap is that those programs actually run through Gap, the company, not the Gap Foundation, because the foundation can't invest in anything that's going to potentially, you know, reap actual benefits or direct benefits or profit to the company as they might, um, in the case of investing in their actual factory workers, you know, there might be increased productivity, et cetera. Um, so that is a slightly different strategy.
0: All right. So when I go to the mall, is there any place I could shop and not feel like I'm part of a massive, oppressive, imperial pro- project? Or is that just naive?
1: <laughs> I mean, essentially, the way global supply chains work is that most of these companies are producing in. The same factories, right? That's so much of what we've learned um, over the past few decades, right? That Reebok, Adidas, Nike—they're all produced in the same factories, or the, you know, Gap, um, H&M, etc. Right? Um, So New Balance, for example, does have U.S. contract uh, U.S. factories um, still, I believe. And you know, there's obviously alternative um, apparel lines, right? so, you know, Kuyana, Everlane, uh, American Apparel, for example, have attempted to directly deal with the kind of sweatshop problem. Um, but oftentimes those that those those clothing are really outside of what is in reach for many people. Right. The you know, I think Everlane attempts to be more affordable, for example, um, and is very open. They have a transparency policy in terms of their f- factories, which are not just in the U.S. but are in other places. Um, but oftentimes, you know, that ends up being more high-end designer clothing that is outside of what most people can afford. When you
0: when you were in graduate school, I mean, did this project come out of your dissertation stuff, or was this so? This is like kind of you started working this in your dissertation what makes you go this route? Like, you know, I mean, like, how do you decide that you're going to throw your life into this project and ruin all your shopping experiences?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I came into graduate school having taught high school in Honduras at first and then in the U.S. um, And then I taught uh, a GED program as well. And so I was, I've always been concerned about education and inequality, particularly around racial difference and then also around gender. And so I came into graduate school wanting to think about these particular questions. And it became really clear in the literature um, and in program policy documents that there was this kind of crisis in girls' education globally. And so I began in my first year at UC Berkeley to really kind of explore that, who were the institutional actors that were involved in dealing with the fact that girls were out of school in disproportionate numbers around the world. And so I was mapping out kind of the UN organizations, the World Bank, large non-governmental organizations known as NGOs, governments, you know, foundations. And as I was writing this kind of first year, rather mundane um, paper, I came across the Nike Foundation's press release on March 8th, International Women's Day 2005. That, that, by
0: the way, is my birthday, March 8th.
1: It is. Wow, that is quite a powerful birthday. My wife
0: loves to remind me that. She's like, I love that your birthday is an International Women's Day.
1: It's pretty amazing. It's a pretty radical beginning. Um, So what we saw in in 2005 was that the Nike Corporation turned, you know, its whole foundation to focus on adolescent girls. And that semester when I was writing this paper, I thought this is a new type of actor. This is not This is not an actor, a development actor that we normally see. Um, And as I began to kind of look a little bit further, I realized, oh, it's not just Nike, but H&M and Starbucks and Exxon and Johnson & Johnson already had programs focused on girls' education. So I began to kind of map out who were the corporate actors involved in development that weren't really being called development actors. We didn't really, in the field of development studies, even really in in the kind of field of, the broader field of development. development policy, people weren't thinking about corporations um, in the way that they are now today. And so I thought, this is a really interesting topic. What does this mean? Like, how is it that these companies are investing in girls and women? What are they bringing to the table? Um, And what makes them an expert in this area? Um, If you're going to dedicate your whole foundation to something, right, you need to have some expertise behind that, right? And so I began to study this um, more critically, but it was a really slow process because, Getting access to companies is not easy, Um, and it took uh, over three years to actually um, be able to have an interview with the Nike Foundation, and anyone who's ever conducted a dissertation or any type of research knows that three years is a really long time. What do you do?
0: Do you call up, hi, this is Catherine Muller. I'd like to talk to somebody. How do they keep putting you off? Are they like, oh, sorry, they're not in this week? Oh, just had a a root canal. I mean, like, how do they put you off for three years? That's a long time.
1: Yeah. So I tried various approaches. I, you know, emailed. It's like in dating. Sometimes
0: you'll go out with someone just to get them to go away. I mean, why, you know, like, like, stringing you on for three years, it seems like it's going to increase the desire.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, you know, I wrote the general email. I contacted individuals who potentially would respond to me or not respond to me, but wouldn't be able to kind of give me an actual formal interview. Um, It took a long time and so the strategy that I developed was really to kind of encircle the foundation in some in some ways and that was how I developed um, field work relationships with many of their institutional partners so um, I began to go to the World Bank and do observations and interviews there I began to uh, work with the Clinton Global Initiative for example where they were also highly involved. I began to, um, you know, b- build relationships with the NGOs they were funding. And, and so in many ways, I kind of was in these different spaces, even though I didn't have formal access to Nike um, at that time. I mean, actually, my formal access to Nike actually came in many ways through the corporation, which was actually much more willing to engage with me, I think, which is interesting than the foundation was. Um, and so my first interviews actually happened at Nike Inc, as opposed to the foundation, um, I think the foundation, as a result of the company's history, you know has been tasked with this goal of doing good and so as ironically, I think there's like even more of a suspicion at the foundation and a concern at the foundation with anything that could be taken out of context, I was told or anything that could make the the foundation and the company look bad and so even after I'd set up formal interviews and sent all my consent forms, which you have to do under formal academic research. I'd sent them all of my interview questions for each interviewee. For example, the, the foundation actually canceled all of those interviews the day before I was already sitting in my hotel room in Portland when I received the email and, um, how how gender.
0: pissed are you at that point? Like when you get oh, well, that All I event. was
1: pretty I was pretty angry. You know, I'd received this little $500 fellowship from the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley to take this trip. And as a graduate student, you don't have a lot of resources. So I'd flown up there, I'd gotten a hotel room, and I'd actually already done an interview at the company itself. Um, with somebody in corporate responsibility when I received this email. And I, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised, um, given the kind of anxieties that the company, I knew the company had around activists and academics. Um, but I was pretty, it was pretty upsetting. And so I showed up the next morning for what they had proposed to be, like this kind of six-on-one interview, um, where they took out their recorder and I kept mine in my purse. And they recorded me for an hour and asked me questions. And at the end of that, it was pretty clear, um, that I wasn't going to get actual formal access unless I agreed to show them my, my writing and also agreed, um, to let them change it and anyone who's done anything about academic freedom realizes that that's completely outside of the boundaries of what would be acceptable and in, in academic research and so that wasn't a possibility and so we came to this agreement um over time um that i would give them the right to review my manuscripts um, but not the right to change them so uh-
0: during this process is they're playing all this cat mouse. And well, more than that, putting up all these roadblocks and all the, you put your recorder away. Do you feel like you're like in the X files? Like what must be (laughs) under here? Or are they they selling kids is shipping off to aliens or what? Like I must be uncovering something massive.
1: (laughs) Well, and it's, what's interesting is like, I'm not a very intimidating character. I'd always be like, why, why, why are they scared of me? You know? Um, And I mean, it does, it does make you question, you know, if you're doing good, as a philanthropic organization, then what do you, what, what do you have to hide? What are you so concerned about? If you're doing good, then your work should speak for itself, right? And if you're not, then you have increased anxiety and you become paranoid. Um, And I think that, you know, that was the kind of conclusion I came to through these bizarre interactions. It was almost like a form of corporate anxiety, you know, and the way that people would talk to me, you know, it was almost like it was some, the conversation was like some form of therapy, like, well, we, you know, we've been attacked over time by radicals and even mainstream folk, and we just need to ensure that that's not going to happen. Um, but if you've really changed your game, right, if you've really become socially responsible, then you should have nothing to hide and nothing to be concerned about.
0: Do you think some of this is you got people like that want that really genuinely? If you're you know if you're working for the Nike Foundation, you're probably someone that really does genuinely care about you know human flourishing and absolutely. And it's probably a great gig, right? You're you're pretty well funded and you probably have nice offices and things. And so is this some is this some of the fear? Like, look, well-meaning, you know, inquisitors could really screw up our gig here, you know, in case Nike mm-hmm. gets get sensitive and we don't want to lose our gig because we're yeah. doing some good things and, and we like our corporate setup and, you know, we can feel good, you know, a, a, and do well personally. And so, Hey, right. don't screw up my gig kind of thing.
1: Yeah. You know, I think absolutely. I think the individuals who work at the foundation are very concerned and um, well-intentioned and want to do good to girls and women. I have no doubt about that. Um, I think that the difference between individuals' intentions and what actually happens, you know, with institutions is 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 kind of you know uh, the issue. And um, yes, I think you know while a lot of the individuals who work at a foundation and it could be Nike or it could be another foundation are really well intentioned, that you know the they also know that I think the company has been through this, you know kind of crisis over the past decade or so. And so there is a lot of anxiety. And I think the people at the foundation oftentimes had worked at the corporation. And, you know, there was one individual I interviewed who'd worked with shoes in China and then moved over to the foundation and was working with girls. Well, working with girls is much more meaningful, right? So this is like meaningful work for people. And I think there was a sense in some ways, right, that, that we're doing good. Like, don't critique us. We're actually the ones that are doing good. We've made a career sacrifice, right? Corporate responsibility and philanthropy is marginalized within the corporate world, right? So you're not getting the same recognition um, in so many ways that you would be if you were working on the corporate side at any of these corporate foundations. Um, And so I think there's a sense of like we've made the good decision, you know, we're not we're not doing the the dirty work, right? We're doing the good work. And so um, you know, I think there's a defensiveness there, Um, and I think also a lot of the individuals that I that I interviewed however well intentioned hadn't done a lot of development work especially in the early years most people had been you know on the corporate side had MBAs um and so really didn't have a lot of expertise in working with girls and women um one individual I interviewed early on you know had a degree in gender women studies but everyone else you know nobody had really worked in the field of education there were very few educators or very few people who had a lot of development experience and so i think there was somewhat of a you know not really being prepared for the field that they were entering. And over time, the foundation hired a lot of people, you know, over time that had a lot of expertise in, um, in development and particularly in gender and development. And they created partnerships with institutions that did. And that was the kind of the, the success, um, is very early on Nike, the Nike foundation, uh, sought out people and institutions that had, you know, oftentimes decades of experience, um, but then at some point that shifted and and the Nike Foundation became the expert um, and oftentimes ended some of those institutional relationships with their with their former partners. How much
0: of ending those kind of relationships do you think is involved? And also I'm thinking as you're talking about who staffs the foundation, you know, there's a sort of assumption that, right, that in a certain kind of development circles that, you know, this is the Fukuyama end of history kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. The liberal free market capitalism is the best system. It's good. It, mm-hmm. Sure, it's got some problems. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to alleviate mitigate the mm-hmm. the wins and losses because really this is the only game in town versus my guess yes. is people that spend their life in global development work probably are a little more critical of the, of the systemic right. stuff. So like yeah, you, I mean, you talk about this in the book, right? That, that this is part of the assumption that this, by even using the word like girl, mm-hmm. we even think like, okay, well, you know, everybody knows little girls that we want them to flourish and, and you kind of make them all like sort of, uh, liberal, capitalistic, the system. Like, you, and, and does it kind of, I guess, distracts from the systemic th- things that make the problem in the first place, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, in a way, the girl effect or any of these programs are really individual solutions to larger systemic problems, right? And they use the girl or the woman as the solution to the problems of poverty and underdevelopment, and those. Those problems are deeply rooted, they're structural, and they're historical. And, you know, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are or how, quote-unquote, empowered a girl or woman is, she's not going to change the structural conditions that cause poverty. That's a result of, you know— Unfree you know unfair trade agreements free trade agreements that don't deal with labor and the environment. It's the result of unequal distribution of resources. It's the result of lack of public investment in education health infrastructure, um, though that's what creates the conditions of poverty and so part of my argument in the book is that investing in girls and women is not a silver bullet to solving these problems, right? In fact, what it does is it shifts the burden of development and and global change onto girls and women without actually dealing with the structural conditions that cause the problems, right, Um, that then women are responsible for. And so, you know, it's not only ineffective, it's morally wrong, right? And so that's why I think um, we need to be thinking about both those things. And, you know, I don't want to be taken out of context. I deeply believe that women and girls yeah. are experts in their world and their lives, Um, and that's really who should be leading the solutions in many ways. Um, But shifting the burden of ending poverty onto them and transferring responsibility away from governments, away from companies, away from global government institutions that are actually creating um, the policies and the practices that lead to intense and deeply entrenched durable inequalities is not the solution. and on top of that, we know that girls and women are already bearing the disproportionate effects of poverty, right? Marie, I tell the president and uh, CEO of the Nike Foundation and now the co-chair of the Girl Effect and the Nike Foundation has said that that girls are the infrastructure, right, of poverty. So we know that if there isn't firewood or water, girls go walk to get it, right? Um, and so we already, there's already the gendered nature of poverty, The problem is, so like the diagnosis in many ways is correct, right, that girls are bearing the disproportionate effects. They're not being sent to school if there isn't money, right, or household labor needs to be done. But the solution is the problem, right? Um, These programs then say that girls and women are the solutions without looking at these kind of larger effects And, and in many ways then absolve themselves, right, these companies of their effects on global development and poverty right so if you're paying living wages right then you don't have to worry about um creating exacerbating conditions of poverty but if you're not paying living wages which many of these companies are not i would say most of these companies are not in their contract factories then these companies should actually be looking at that instead um is kind of my conclusion
0: at first it's creepy to call human beings infrastructure too right that's just i mean mm-hmm. I, metaphors mean a lot Right, and when you yeah. uh, when you start using terms like that, like it's just it's really interesting and a little creepy. But yeah, and also it seems to to moralize it in the worst sense. Like, I and mean, I feel like Americans love to moralize and then demonize poverty, right? So you just kind mm-hmm. of yeah, people are poor, their own fault fall, and they, you, you include mm-hmm, all these mm-hmm. almost, And so then what it does is it globalizes that discourse, right? Well, hey, look, mm-hmm. you know, we can sort of get the, the resources of the global capitalist engine to them. Uh, you know and then it's their own damn fault if they can't make it, yeah. it right. <laughs> out of
1: right you're just it's just
0: perpetual blaming the victim right
1: right right um yeah no i mean the whole nike foundation girl effect video which is so powerful and so beautifully done and so sleek you know um it ends with like just invest in a girl and she'll do the rest that's the, that's the quote um and then it talks about you know it, it's just the future of humanity you know and you think uh, I mean, in so many ways, you know, obviously a video is just reduced to a basic message. But the basic message, as you say, is really powerful. Just invest in a girl and she'll do the rest. Like, how on earth does that seem... Like a feminist solution? Does that seem like a moral solution? Like in so many ways, that's really problematic. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the language we use matters. Um, So for example, you know, I talk about in the book, the ways in which girls and women are talked about, like we would talk about like drilling untapped oil reserves or unleashing solar technologies in this language of maximizing returns on investment and so when you talk about girls in those ways you talk about increasing gdp and returns and efficiency you end up with programs that are very very reductive you know and i think that's part of the real problem is that the way you frame the problem and the way you frame the solution then actually has real material effects on programs and policies and has effects on girls and women's lives. And that, you know, is what I, I try to show in the book in terms of how this translated into NGO programs that focused on girls as reproductive and economic actors, not as learners with diverse needs, desires, and futures. Um, and so we get curriculum, pedagogy that is very reductive, um, that's that has very limited goals. And, you know, one of my real concerns using the language of, of Lisa Delpit is that this is about other people's children. This is about other girls. Um, and the the individuals who create these programs would never create these same programs for their children. Right. This is about other girls from other races, ethnicities, languages, girls and women that most of the individuals at the foundation or in the even in these development offices will never know. Um, And the assumption
0: is, too, right. It's okay, Invest in the girl. That's just imputing to her all of the all of the social capital that the people's kids have that are developing the programs. Right. So so the person that if you just invest in them, that's in a, you know, upper middle class, you know, one percent, even five percent home. Mm -hmm or the good school system with semi-functional family structures and things well yeah invest in that one one girl and she's gonna probably but but put that girl in you know somewhere in the global south it it you know it to deleterious yeah now 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 bank on your how's your investment work then you know
1: right well and i think that you know i often have talked about the you know Myself in comparison to this, like when my parents invested in my education as a middle class white girl from the suburbs of Chicago, like I was an end in and of myself, right? My parents didn't have any expectations, right? And my community and my nation didn't have any expectations that I was going to save not only myself, but everyone else with me, right? I was an end in and of myself. In comparison to the way the rhetoric is, you know, that a girl is not just going to be educated herself, but that it's going to affect her children, her family, communities, and nation. I mean, people even talk about girls are going to save the world, right? So It's really problematic because the forms of education become very different. And, you know, and the way you measure those forms of education, for example, um, one thing I think that was deeply disturbing to me as an educator um, was that the ways in which success or failure was measured during the time that I was doing my observations in 2009, 2010 was based on these metrics, indicators, for example, around pregnancy. So um, did girls get pregnant or not as a measurement for educational success? Like, was this program successful? Um, and one of the top indicators was did girls get pregnant or not, right? So we think about those are that's a really reductive measurements Um, and girls getting pregnant or not. um, It's very problematic, right? Because we know what the history of kind of reproductive control is globally and in the U S around black and Brown women's bodies. Um, And so then to measure the success of an educational program based on did girls and women get pregnant? Did they get, did they marry, for example, um, create really problematic then pedagogies and curriculum that are attempting then to prove that they didn't get the girls didn't get pregnant and that they didn't marry early. Um, and so that is, I think, you know, one of the problems is that rather than measurements or forms of accountability, which are going to actually measure learning and what girls were learning and how they were learning and what they wanted to learn and what are the programs actually providing them with that form of knowledge and training that they desired. Um, I think that's where, you know, there was just a real discrepancy. Um, You know, I talk about in the book that there was a moment um, at the very beginning of the program, we just recruited all these young women and it took months to find um, young women for the program. And after this long kind of what I call this search for, for, for young women, um, we had the first day at the program, and I was an educator, and so I was excited when the young women went around uh, a circle in, this, in the classroom and said what they wanted to be, really, despite multiple constraints on their lives. And, you know, one wanted to be a veterinarian, another a pharmacist, kind of an engineer, and so on. And six months later, after this really intensive program, it was four hours per day, five days a week for six months, um, non-paid, right? Which for young women who are also concurrently attending high school, that's a really, that's a long, that's a big commitment. And the same girls and young women went around the room after having taken this course to become an administrative assistant and almost all of them, the majority of them, said that they wanted to become administrative assistants. And it was really striking the individual who was visiting um, actually turned to me in English and said, well, why do they all want to be administrative assistants? Um, and so, the, you know, what I take from that is that this was a form of education that was deeply reductive, right? That actually limited girls and young women's possibilities and understandings of what they could be, Um as opposed to doing really the deep, hard work of dealing with educational inequality, right? That's about um, conditions of poverty, persistent racism, patriarchy, right? Things that were heterosexism, things that were holding these young women back um, in their education and could have been dealt with in many ways, right? So there are ways that I think you can deal with, for example, in Rio inequitable educational conditions um, for girls and women. But that's hard long-term work, right? And a short-term program of six months, right, for an NGO that's only getting three years of funding. There's there's not the time, there's not the funding to actually do that really um, substantial work that needs to be done.
0: Are you like over in the corner like, hey, come here kid here's a copy of uh, das kapital (laughs) and here's a website about intersectionality (laughs) maybe you won't want to be an administrative assistant anymore (laughs) i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning after your evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham. Jordan and Danny morseberger Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan butrin Ben Dehart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen lipless Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com/slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show.
1: You know, I, you know, I think. Um, I mean, your point is that I think that there are transformative forms of education, right, that get young people in meaningful ways to look at them and begin to question it, right? Paulo Freire is from Brazil, right? There's a whole long history of popular education in Brazil. And these forms of education didn't touch on that really at all. Um, So one of the, the heads of the NGOs who was doing the monitoring and evaluation work, you know, he was talking about how qualification for the labor market was, you know, one of these was the main goal of the of the program. But he's like, qualification is structural. Qualification is about race and it's about gender and it's about class. Um, And so you can try to prepare young women in this six month program. But if you're not dealing with these larger structures at the core of your program, not that you're going to be able to shift everything, but if you're not attempting to deal with these core issues that are holding girls and women back. Then you're really not going to be effective. And what I saw was that most of the young women, th- at least those who graduated, and a lot of lef- a lot left the program before they even graduated, didn't get jobs that were going to transform their futures. Right? They got low-paying, temporary jobs um, that they might have been able to get otherwise. Um, and I'm not saying that the program didn't work really hard to get girls and women jobs. They did. The NGO workers worked really hard and cared and wanted these young women to have meaningful futures. Um, and yet I think the way the program was structured from the beginning, wasn't going to, wasn't going to enable that. And
0: also if it's qualification for the workforce, right. Through a corporate lens. And so you, let's say it's a pretty well-run program and the things, the basic skills that would help you get an administrative, if those kinds of things are what you're rewarded for as a student, right. So you get, you get lots of carrots, you know, not 60. So, so all of a sudden, your feeling of success in the program right, is tied to these skill sets you acquired. Oh, you're doing great. At this You could really throw. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you've you've totally reshaped the horizon of their imagination. Right. And now mm-hmm. I want to be in the corporate machine. I mean, this is, look, mm-hmm. they, you know, they're telling me I'm good at this. You know, I mean, I, right. I, that seems it seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's no direct correlation, you know, as we've showed between, you know, what curriculum and pedagogy are saying and what young people are actually necessarily thinking or want to be. But I think there is, you know, I definitely saw evidence of that, of young women really taking on um, identities that were slowly and carefully um, given to them through kind of pedagogical work. And that's where I think we need to question is what is the content of these programs, right? So yes, girls and women need to be educated. Girls and women need to be invested in, right? But what is the content of the programs and the policies that we're creating? And those are the hard questions we need to ask as a, as a community, a development community, a feminist community, edu- as educators, um, those are the hard questions that need to be asked.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because right now, even I would say, I mean, a, a sort of inner dispute on the American political left. With people like Mark Lilla and others that you're saying, you know, too much identity politics, right? That that you know that I I I can't tell you how many people I've talked with on this podcast. You know, front it, 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 this is a big debate about is identity politics. You know, the last election, presidential election. You know. Part of the story was well, Hillary Clinton kind of banked too much on identity politics and gathering up all the you know sort of interested parties in the identity politics conversation. Kind of, and we need to sort of treat people more like you know the girl effect. Let's look at individuals and socioeconomic. It sounds like what you're saying is, hey, we might need a little more identity politics and intersectionality because there are a lot of You, you talk in the book about how there's it's significant that we play down that these are black and brown. Mm -hmm. young women and and, and because that we we want to mute conversations if we're if you're a corporate actor that would make things awkward and uncomfortable right
1: i mean i think we need to be thinking about identity politics because that's what structures right our institutions so question race structures our institutions right gender structures our institutions so it's not just like an identity that you can like get rid of right you can't like choose right we're always simultaneously racialized and classed and gendered right and though that has long histories right and deep institutional histories right and so it's not i think that's the the kind of problem you know with oh we need to just stop focusing on these identities well these identities structure people's lives and they structure people's futures in really deep um, ways. Um, and so that's what we need to be thinking about is how does race structure our programs and policies, right? How does gender structure these? Um, yeah. So I talk about the gender effect. I mean, the girl effect, right. Is, is all about gender, right. Or more specifically about girls. Um, but really it's a deeply racialized project, um, and development, And the history of development is a deeply racialized project development came out of the end of colonial administrations, right? Where the large empires of the world began to kind of collapse, right? And you had newly freed um, post-colonial nations and the project of colonialism in many ways was replaced by the project of development. How now do you develop these previously um, colonized nations? And so, you know, I think that it's deeply racialized. Colonialism at its core is deeply racialized. This whole structure of development today, right? Who are the donors, right? And who are the supposed beneficiaries? And those fall along racialized lines. And yet, nobody talks about race and development. It's taboo. Um, and, but we need to be having conversations about race and girls um, because there's no way to to not really. Right. Um, There's no way to not when programs are targeting black and brown girls and young women, we have to be having those direct conversations. And yet nobody wants to. Right. Because we speak in such colorblind ways and our institutions are are formed based on colorblind ideologies. And so to have those uh, more direct conversations about race is really difficult.
0: And this goes back. Right, I mean, there's a woman I had as a guest on She's been on the podcast a couple of times, Jocelyn Alcott, and she wrote a mm. book, The History of International Women's Year, like that first yes. know, seventy-five. It was, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean the the I, the book is fantastic i mean it, it reads like a screenplay which is which for academic histories i mean you know that's not always the case you know, so but one of the running conflicts is in that first year in these development questions right the right the kind of bourgeois feminist kind of idea who are mm-hmm. funded dif- really differently and stuff versus right. it's kind of organic on the ground uh, folks in the global south who are, are many of them are black and brown and And the sense of real tension, uh, not because of great misunderstanding about what priorities are and how they look differently in different contexts.
1: Right. And as you say, these are decades old conflicts, right? About who whose knowledge counts, whose expertise counts, whose experience counts in terms of shaping development. Um, And time and time again, decades and decades later, what we see, right, is that The powerful companies, powerful countries, powerful institutions are who's shaping it, right? Um, And yet they have profound effects on people's, everyday people's lives. Um, And the knowledge of uh, marginalized individuals again and again is not accounted for um, in development discourses, policies, and practices.
0: It's interesting. I, I saw an interview Bill Gates did with Time fairly recently, and he was saying that basically Big foundations like his, what they're good at is some tinkering, like some, you know, sort of outside the box thinking. But governments, only governments can really move the systemic stuff because they have the money, mm-hmm. the resources, and that sort of people shouldn't look to corporate foundations for the systemic change like that we need. Po- and he was advocating government investment, right? Like that, that there's real limits, right? And you talk about this in your book that, that so oftentimes that the the, 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 success, the perceived success of these corporate sort of development projects really often it's like, it it distract us from the fact that like major infrastructure things and stuff that are really going to make girls' lives better. I mean, these are things Mm -hmm. that require massive governmental, massive systemic things that can't just be done by corporations.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I appreciate that Bill Gates is, is advocating for that. I mean, I think we need to, given the power of the Gates Foundation, right? They just, um, just last week announced, uh, they're dedicating $170 million to women's economic empowerment. Right. Um, and so they, they move the needle, um, that is, that's big money. Um, and what's even more significant is that because they're doing that type of work, others are going to, right. They're going to try to catch that that funding stream, which is what I've seen with the Nike Foundation's work and the work of other companies, is that organizations will now shift to actually catch up, right? They may not have been doing women's economic empowerment before, but now they will, right? Um, And so they, you know, $170 million is field shaping, right? Um, But it's still not what is actually going to ultimately transform uh, girls and women's lives um, but you know companies for example like if they really care about girls and women then they should make sure that they're paying taxes properly in all of the locations of their businesses right where they're headquartered where all of their production or extraction happens right and we what we see is like long histories of corporate offshoring um you know the apple has a long history of offshoring that you know in ireland and uh, isle of man and britain and you know at the same time they're you know Dedicating funds to the the Malala Fund um, to educate. And 100- Apple
0: in Ireland, and everybody tells Ireland with this low corporate tax rate. Everybody says if we lower the corporate tax rate, oh, they'll they'll I pay more. Well, it doesn't matter how low a company Apple's still still trying to duck the taxes.
1: <laughs> right, right. You know, so you know, part of me is Apple has has you know influence all over the world. Like if you are really concerned about girls and women, right, which they claim that they are, they're putting you know, money into educating 100,000 girls in Latin America and in India, then make sure you're paying your taxes throughout Latin America and India, right? Make sure you're paying your proper taxes in the United States, right? Um, that are actually going to transform girls and women's lives in substantive long-term sustainable ways, right? Um, you know, that's, I think, one of the main problems is that there are trends in global development. Girls are in one decade, something else, youth are in the next decade, right? Well, this is what we farmers the next, right? So we see these trends, particularly around populations and development, um, and what's seen to be the the investment with the highest rate of return. And yet these are fads. And, and, you know, corporations and corporate boards or foundation boards change, right? And they decide, actually, we no longer want to invest in this um and so for example what we see with the nike foundation is that they did work from 2005 to 2015 and then decided to make the the girl effect an independent organization um and so that was a pretty quick uh, transformation um, and yes in the in the recent uh, giving as far as the 990s show they've you know invested quite heavily in the in the girl effect and I they say from my conversations with them recently that they're going to continue but you know changes of a board of directors or changes um, you know at the foundation happen quite frequently and they make it unsustainable um, in terms of actual long-term work that the communities really need.
0: You know, I, I always think that if Augustine, Nietzsche, and Woody Allen agree on anything, like, it must be true. I mean, I think what all those thinkers see is that, like, we are, the heart it wants what it wants. So, like, reason, like, or yeah, what is uh, Jeff Goldblum, I forget his character, in The Big Chill, I think it says, a human being can get through a day without food or sex, but they can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And so, mm-hmm. so I mean, part of, like, the one of the things I pick away, take away from your book is that, like, that, corporations a, a corporate sort of development actors they want a certain kind of market capitalist system right mm-hmm. so then everything the heart wants what it wants everything is filtered to the desire the market the market so mm-hmm. you're kind of if, if every if if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail yeah so this is is I mean it, it I mean it it seems pretty bleak. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, yeah, you know, corp- as corporations, right, this is what corporations are going to do, right? I mean, uh, right. Uh, th- this is just, there, there's, th- those assumptions, right, are are tough, I would guess, to shake.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the marketization of everything, right, is what we've experienced over the past couple decades. That's what Michael Watts's phrase, not mine. And, you know, I think when we introduce markets into all aspects of our lives, right, What we get are intense, exacerbated inequalities. Markets fail. We know markets fail, right? And you can't solve market failure by introducing new markets, right? (laughs) Um, And... You know, so so many of the the problems that we're experiencing today are about market failure, and yet development is is trying to deal with those through these market based individualized solutions, um, and it that's just not going to transform things, and it has real effects. So, for example, um, I, I watched in in the NGO that received Nike funding how, you know, girls and young women were shaped or through curriculum, through pedagogy, through the things that educators said to them to really um, be who the market wanted, right? Um, the, In fact, in one of the recruitments I, I attended at one of the high schools, um, the director of programs actually said, we're going to like, we're going to, we're going to Form you in the way that the market looks for. O jeito que o mercado procura, right? O jeito is like the way of being um, in Portuguese. It's a really powerful phrase. And so the way of being that the market looks for is what we're going to help you become, right? And so you can imagine then all of the kind of transformations of self, right, that that would require in terms of clothing, in terms of ways of speaking, in terms of sexuality, for example, right? The market, in some ways, you know, the educators were giving young women the message that the market wasn't looking for LGBTQ girls and women, right? That they were looking for, the market is heterosexual, right? And so if you dressed in a certain way, or that you had certain desires, you needed to transform to what the market wanted, right? And that's where, as an educator and a feminist, I get really concerned, right? Because that has real impacts on individuals' well-being, individuals' futures, um, in ways that we really need to think about.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just the fact that we think of ourselves, wherever you are politically, right, the fact that we think of ourselves as, as consumers uncritically, right? Like, you don't hear people... buck against that a lot you know in mainstream political oh we just assume a word like consumer right well that's what i am i consume shit (laughs) Mm -hmm. like that's so reductive right i mean like Mm -hmm. that's a really reductive view of like what it means to flourish as a human being right
1: right well and you know we've turned parents into consumers right in terms of making choices for their schools they're consumers right they're targeted as consumers children are consumers in classrooms like we think you know the way you know as of being a professor in higher education oftentimes undergraduates imagine themselves as consumers right so, well that changes the social relations of education if parents and students are consumers principally consumers right that changes the pedagogical relationship between um between educators and and students right in in really important and profound ways
0: you're going from like you know the lyceum to target <laughs> right like you go to plato the lyceum you, expect, you don't expect or the RSLU, so you, you don't expect the, you know but or athens you know you but yeah at target you expect hey i get what yeah. i want or i go see the manager mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah yeah
1: um, and I think we can see that in profound ways in our educational systems, K through 12 and higher education. Um, we don't have to go, you know, to countries, um, you know, that are being intervened in through the development regime to see that. We can see that in our own public schools and universities.
0: So my wife and I binge watch st- st- stuff all the time. And like we, we've we seen a couple of great sci-fi dramas lately, like Continuum, Altered Carbon, every one of them, incorporation on sci-fi, every one of them has this dystopian future in which corporations take over because government is insufficient to solve the problems like climate change that corporations help create everything and then everybody's just corporations sort of supersede government and then it's the super it's even more stratified than it is now and I'm watching all these and they're so creepy because like they're not hard to, they're not that sci-fi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they not. Mm-hmm. They don't seem that absurd. So you're a professor. You're an idealist. Is there hope, Catherine? <laughs> Is there hope that we are not living in a sci-fi post-apocalyptic dystopian <laughs> arc?
1: Um, I mean, I'm always hopeful, you know, I think. That's part of what drives what I do, right? I that doesn't have, give
0: me much comfort. in saying I'm I know. always so
1: <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have done this project if I if I didn't have right hope, right? in, in a feminist future, in a future that is more just. Um, but I do think we are in a in a very very complicated situation in a very very complicated moment, and I I don't actually have answers. Um, in fact, the publishing of this book has been um, rather revealing in and of itself. Um, the book was originally titled. The The girl effect. Um, It was out on Amazon as the girl effect. It was out on the press website as the girl effect. And Nike accused me of of copyright infringement. Um, And so the book shifted titles, right? Um, And our, you know, ongoing kind of negotiations around the content in the book, for example, really left me with the feeling that this company wants to control what I'm publishing. Right. Um, And that I think when we're in a moment when companies are attempting to control academic research and shape what is said and what can be said, um, that we have a real problem. Um, And that has been my experience over the past um, few months of trying to publish this book. And so if anything, I've realized that we need to be doing this work, but we need to be doing this work not as individuals. We need to be doing this work collectively um, and it needs to be institutionalized in institutions that have power that will provide legal services that will provide financial backing that will um, enable individuals to collectively do work that's going to hold corporations accountable and ensure that they're transparent right about their philanthropic practices around their business practices in ways that we can't really do right now right Um, particularly in universities
0: Catherine, you might not have any answers, but I feel like part of this, to live in a better future, is, is asking the right questions. And your book, The Gender Effect, really asks a lot of them. So thank you for writing it and for spending some time talking to me on, on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me here today.
0: Oh, uh, pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Catherine for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, The Gender Effect. And thanks to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.